Hello there. Are you the relatives of Mr. Johnson? That's, that's right. I'm, I'm his daughter, Alice, and this is my brother, Simon. How's he doing, Doctor? Is he going to pull through? Impossible to say at the moment. We've done our best, but at the moment we just need to monitor his progress for the next few days and see if there's any sign of improvement. Right. So there's not much you could tell us? Not really, no. I'm really sorry I can't tell you more. Well, can we just stay with him for a while? Of course. While you're here, there's a form I need you to fill in, if you wouldn't mind. Of course. It's fairly straightforward. Here you go. You might or might not know that your father carried a donor card with him. (laughs) He did mention something about that, yes. Well... After the problems we had last year with families complaining about unauthorised animation of late relatives, we like to make sure people are happy with the procedure. So I'll give you a few minutes to read and fill out the form. Thanks, Doctor. What did he mean, unauthorised animation of late relatives? Maybe he gets made into a bad cartoon without permission. Not sure about that. I don't think I've ever seen a bad cartoon. You never saw biker mice from Mars, then? Either way, let's have a look. Right. Tick box if you consent to blood and organ donation, as per the patient's wishes. That's okay, isn't it? Well, if Dad had a donor card, I suppose it means he's happy for that. It's standard stuff, isn't it? What's the next box say? Tick here if you consent for the patient's body to be donated to scientific research. Don't know I like that. Well, it would save on funeral costs, I suppose. Tick it. This last one looks a bit more complex, though. Tick here if you're happy for the patient's lifeless body to become a host for a zombie gas monster who will animate and stagger around, apparently unnoticed through society, until it gets a bit fed up and disappears through the nearest gas-reliant appliance. Sounds all right to me. Hi there, Udets. And Udeals. Udeals? It's a, it's a Swan Lake reference. Is, is it? Yes. In, in Swan Lake, the two lead characters are called Odette and Odile. Wow. Yeah. Do they listen to podcasts at any point? Totally. The there, there's a whole pas de deux about it. Pas de deux is a dance move. It's it's a, called Dance of Two People. Excellent. And that is a welcome to episode eight of the Oodcast, which this week is about the classic New Who episode, The Unquiet Dead. With me this week is the intelligent Laura. Hello. Hello. Hi. The amorous Andrew. Hi. And the chloroform-using Chris Alpha. Um, 
Hello. I was trying to be illiterate and then just a bit from the episode popped into my mind. Did you mean alliterative rather than illiterate? I said alliterate. Aha. I think I did. Did I? Who knows? I thought you said illiterate. How can you tell if he's illiterate when he's speaking? And I was accusing you of being illiterate anyway. Or illiterate. No, I was saying I was illiterate. Yeah, yeah. You're accusing me of being some kind of chloroforming nut. (coughs) We should go to Woodcast News. Yep. Classic. Oodcast News. Welcome to the Oodcast News. The headlines. The Doctor Who experience promises to be a not-to-be-missed thrill for all Doctor Who fans, but not for RAG, the robot animal rights group who are already camping outside the exhibition to protest about the controversial K-9 racing exhibit. It has been exclusively revealed that episode 9 of the new series will feature the Doctor battling against a species which gains a foothold on the Earth that attempts to invade through excessive breeding. It is provisionally titled The Doctor and David Beckham. It has been suggested by historical and anthropological experts that attempts by a servant girl in the 1860s to close a rift in the time-space continuum and stop corpses being possessed by gaseous spirits had in fact failed and the resulting meat puppets have been used for every single series of Big Brother. Podcaster unable to do a Welsh accent. A sudden rise in Cardiff fake fur sales leads to Yeti speculation. Following the featuring of sharks in the Christmas special, lawyers acting on behalf of the Merca have issued the BBC with warning of legal action. A spokesman said, Our client is still contracted to the BBC and feels that he is more than capable of floating around a CGI set to no obvious obstruction of the story. Broadcast News so this week we're um, looking at the Unquiet Dead. So this is the third, the third episode after the show came back with Christopher Eccleston. The first one not written by Russell T Davis. This was by Mark Gatiss. Um, what are our first impressions? I thought, oh, here we go. Here we are. It's back. Doctor Who's back properly. Because after those opening weeks of character exposition and introducing who is the doctor why does he travel on his own and the way that rose is getting to know him now we're in a position where the uh, the tardis arrives in the middle of some pretty dastardly events we've got corpses coming to life or are they and we've got um you know th- this man sneed his business is falling apart around his ears and what is going on and how will the doctor interact with it and solve it and sort it all out. It feels very classic series to begin with. Absolutely. That's the thing that struck me more than anything. And I think the point that sort of makes that work maybe is that we're Mark Gatis or Gatis? Gatis. Gatis. I think it's Gatis. When Mark Gatis wrote it, he didn't know what the style of the new series was going to be mm. like. Now, he probably had a tone document. He probably had meetings with RTD about it. But neither of them really knew what it was like. And so he wrote what he knew. He wrote the old series. And there's so many things in it that really ring true to me of the old series. We spend time with the other characters. We don't really do that in the new show anymore. We're always yeah. seeing it through the companions of the Doctor's eyes. There's never really them... There's not that many scenes where they're absent completely. 
and the pre-credit sequence is one of those, and it does feel very classic. Uh, that is one of my favourite couple of minutes of the first series on the return. But first of all, you've got you've got zombies, and then you've got an old man rushing in saying, "Oh no, not again!" <laughs> and the death count. Yeah. The death yeah. count is brilliant well, as well. Somebody dies in the first minute of the episode. That's mm. yeah, that's pretty pretty nasty neck mm. snap as and well. And we've mm. got a in a way, it's the first cliffhanger of the new series with the old woman screaming towards the camera mm. and then the music crashes in. That's a very old-style Doctor Who cliffhanger. But There's it, more as well. There's Rose trapped in the room with the zombies mm. going towards the door at about sort of a third of the way through. Mm. The, it's structured and, like an old and, episode. And the companion being separated from the Doctor early being on. Being captured, Being yeah. captured. And it, strikes, it did strike me that there's quite a lot in it of... Um, Kind of, it's got a kind of hammer horror feel about it as well, especially the beginning, where you don't see the old woman escape from the the building, but you go from her attacking somebody in a parlor and then escaping through the door to her suddenly being out in the street and screaming. And there are little touches like that that you don't need to see the bit in the middle. And hammer horror slowly walking (laughs) through the house, (laughs) (laughs) but at the same time, there's also. Uh, hints of the new in that that's a sort of a crane shot, isn't it? As she mm. it's a yeah. slow pullback as she walks towards the camera, uh, and that that shows that it is sort of modern film, modern television making with with modern technology. Mm. So it's quite an interesting melding. It really is this new production team setting out their stall. Mm. And then you've still got the. Um the setup of the doctor and the companion's relationship which has been growing in the last in the previous two episodes you still got that going on and growing the way that they're um working the console together and the way that the tardis sort of crash lands and they both fall onto the floor laughing i can't imagine that happening in the classic series yeah. but it's a very new uh, who kind of thing the, the stuff about you've got to go and change that's very classic series as well mm. that reminded me very much of things uh, well, when leela was in the tardis with tom baker but yeah just and that the line that chris Eccleston delivers is something it is i've written it down so i know it's this are you writing it down <laughs> go out there dressed like that you'll start a riot barbarella like, <laughs> that's a really nice it's a really kind of quick witty line and we don't really see yeah. it doesn't really matter what they're wearing and the TARDIS has got other rooms he goes mm. down there um, next corridor past the bins underneath the stairs and then fourth door on the right mm. <laughs> I've just been thinking about breakfast since you started talking because the way you said Eccleston remind me of Bacon and Eccleston Bacon and Eccleston Bacon and Eccleston also his name kind of reminds me a bit of Eccles Cakes and Muesli and I'm on a slight diet at the moment and I'm really hungry so everything is just making diet. me think about food but I did think it was really pants how they both fell over when the TARDIS landed ah, 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 look at us we fell over it can't stand up oh rubbish John Shut Pertweet up. Pertweet <laughs> sorry ah. I'm doing other Doctor Tom, Who's with food Tom related Baker. Tom Baker Tom Baker Colin Baker Patrick Trout Fried McCoy's McCoy's crisps. McCoy's crisps. Yeah, you see, you've got it now. You're you're in. You're there. Oh no, I'm so hungry. I just want some eggs. Can I have some eggs when we finish recording this? Some eggs. Yeah, I love eggs. Of course. If I could have come up with something at that point, and then down to the pub later on for attendance. Oh, (laughs) see, I want fire. Andy, Andy, Andy. 
Paul McGammon. <laughs> <laughs> I, do you know what, actually? This episode was well scary. It was. It really amped up the fear. And, I, and yeah. again, it was the series going, no, we're not going to mollycoddle you. Mm. It's going to be scary. Mm. Deal with it. It was just the moment, you know, when when the ghosty people would finally come awake and you'd be like, oh, crap. And then, you know, yeah. someone else would die. But I they were fairly ineffectual, weren't they? they I mean, were. she she snapped her neck good and proper to begin with. But after that, that bit where Rose is safe, they just have stood beside her as if they were taking a photo- <laughs> photograph with her. They, 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 were, they were gaseous aliens that lived in the gas supply but wouldn't burn when they go into a gas lamp. Which I thought was weird. Evening all. Evening. Evening. It's come to my attention that we're running out of time in this world. What does that mean? We all know that since we got caught up in the time war, we've been reduced to a gaseous state. It does have plus points. Such as... Easy to sneak into rooms without being noticed. I've told you before, you glow blue when you do that. I only sneak into blue rooms now. Yes, very handy. Anyway, we're stuck as a gas and we're only able to sustain this form because we managed to hole up in this house on top of a rift in time and space. The point is, the rift is starting to fail, so we need to think of a way to keep ourselves going. We need to leave the rift, and I asked Derek to look into some possible alternative avenues. So over to you, Derek. Thank you, Leonard. The first idea I had was to simply move to another rift. Sounds good. Except that the nearest rift to this one is in Swansea. Ugh, I refuse. I'd rather dissipate than go there. It's bad enough being stuck in Cardiff. Just as well I discount this option on the grounds of our unjustifiable xenophobic tendencies and moved on to my second option. Using an extensive laboratory, I could, in theory, identify the boiling and therefore freezing points of our very existence, and we could then call ourselves into a liquid and finally into a solid state. Forgive me for asking, Derek, but how is that useful? A solid form is better than a gaseous state, surely you agree? But if we're frozen, would we be able to move? Well, I also discounted this option due to future mobility issues. Are we paying him to do this? I then considered briefly that as we now need gases to sustain us, we could inhabit the corpses of recently deceased human beings. I discounted this because of the smell and the fact that we'd cause a bit of a stir when we move around. So what? Well, you know what happened a couple of Christmases ago when several of us went slightly overboard with those... Strange little green vegetable things. Oh, Lord. The smell. I remember the smell. Well, this will be worse than that. Did you have any other ideas? I did have one, yes. Isn't there some sort of clairvoyant living on the rift we could speak through? You know, to sort of get permission. I mean, I'd rather put up with the smell than go out of existence, wouldn't you? Yes, well, there is a woman with psychic powers who we could contact in theory... But there's no need. Let's get on with it, then. What's her name? Gwyneth. Call her. Go on. The sooner we get started, the quicker we can get hold of some corpses. I sneaked into a room in the house earlier. There's a corpse lying in a box. We could give it a try now and then ask permission. No point in asking for something we can't actually do. Right, OK. Sally, you go and try that. Brian, come with me and we'll establish the link with this Gwyneth. Good plan. Wait. I was trying to tell you all that I've discovered a process that would res- restore our bodies and all we'd have to do is hum. Oh, uh, if you're not going to listen. Mm. 
that I think shows the uh, the sort of the genius and the Britishness at the core of the show, as well as the Doctor's failings. I think because if it was an American show, they realised that the the monster is in the gas. Someone would have pulled out a blowtorch or a fire, a flamethrower, torched the lot of them, and everyone would have been gelf free. Everything would have been safe, and you'd have had a few extra bits of prime real estate in the centre of Cardiff for sale. But because it's it's the, and probably it's the doctor, he lets them get servant. on with it to see what happens. I'm not sure. I'd say the tenth doctor by the end would probably have just chucked a match in there pretty pretty smartish. Yeah. Yeah. But, when he got a bit dark. By the way, speaking of chucking a match in and it all flaming up, I think the real reason the Gelf deserved to die wasn't that they were going to take over a few more corpses than originally planned. It was that they were so flipping thick as to be all blue and floaty. And then as soon as they get in, they go all red and flamey. And you're like, oh, you duh. Yeah. Just, you know, if you'd waited six or seven minutes, it would have been fine. You know, yeah, the doctor would have been on his way. And then do your evil, I've got a ghost rider head on. Just because I've got the sort of brain that immediately tries to fix script problems as soon as I hear it. <laughs> would it be because there was too many of them? Well, they suddenly went they, red. They said there's only it. a few of them. So mm. the doctor would have known something was up as soon as they all started pouring through anyway. So they thought, let's give them the light show anyway. Ah, yeah, uh, got ya. Even, even <laughs> with all the ones in the room, there are, about, there are about 20 or 30 of them hanging around there. And that wasn't right, surely. Uh, but that, that whole scene, the, the moral dilemma that's set up by the Gelf wanting the corpses is quite good, I think. I, I like the fact that you get all the scares and then you end up with a moral dilemma that they're trying to kind of solve. To... A new morality, as the Doctor mm. puts it. Yeah, no, mm. it is interesting. Well, this is quite interesting because this is still the Doctor that we don't remember from the classic series. He's still the Doctor of very questionable morality. He's still the Doctor who's battle-scarred and going to do things which seem to the companion and therefore to the audience to be really out of order. And saying, Because, I mean, he just seems to be trying... To help everybody. And I know mm. to us that seems a bit, you know, okay, he's being a bit off here. That's not really a very good thing to do. But he's basically seeing an opportunity and saying, why can't they do this? You don't need the dead people. You're just going to put them in the ground. Mm. So why can't you give them to somebody else? To Which I totally thought them. was but fair enough. I was like, oh, shut up, Rose. And But the point that he's only doing that because the Gelf mentioned the time war and he's so guilty. Mm. Mm. I think it's born of his guilt. Because can you really imagine any of the other doctors saying, yeah, all right, you can have those bodies? I think he's just teaching Rose something. Because he says later on, um, we'll transport you to another yeah. planet. His his plan is never to change history to a point where walking corpses are just part of everyday life in the 20th century. I think he's just trying to teach Rose a bit about what could happen, right? but he reveals fairly quickly that he wouldn't actually yeah, let such you, a major change we'll happen. We'll take you to another planet and you can try and find a more permanent home. This is only a temporary solution. Going back to the thing that you were saying earlier, Laura, about it being quite scary, I think you're absolutely right. It is pretty fearlessly scary for primetime family viewing. I have a quote. Ooh. We want this world and all its flesh. Just to demonstrate the scariness, that's... There is quite a lot of flesh. You've got corpses coming to life. You've got a seance. Mary Whitehouse would have been appalled. She would have. If she had been brought back to life by a gaseous entity. Then perhaps. 
Can I talk quickly about the character of Rose? And I know for a lot of fans, Rose is a character that because of the blossoming relationship between her and the Doctor has become a bit of a pariah almost in the fan community. Certainly for some, people hate her. They think that she's whiny and clingy and um, she, her, her legacy isn't great for a lot of a lot of fans. I personally don't feel like that. I thought it was a very brave relationship. I think the emotion um, of that relationship was something new and very interesting. And I'm glad that there was that. I mean, that's just where I stand with it. I, I, I quite like Rose all the way through, even during the slightly whiny years. But here, she is a fearless character, beautiful, really very interesting. And um, I can just see, you can see at this point why the Doctor falls in love with her, I think. Um, and there's a great bit at the beginning where they have a quick talk and she says at the end, better with two, though. And it's just a really lovely character moment. Mm. And I just want to say now that I think that you, you can lazily reduce the RTD era to being overblown and a bit silly and the Stephen Moffat era to be very well crafted and sort of magical. But actually, RTD did have his magic too. And his magic lay less in plot and more in emotional interaction and relationship. And he is peerless, I think, at so it. For me, it's when she is fearless and there's no massive tie between her and the Doctor. She's enjoying it. She loves being with him and discovering. She's, she's not learning. smug. Yeah, it, that when she's with the Ninth Doctor, that I think is tremendous. And I do, I really like her in that series. She's um, the first one to twig who the body snatchers yeah. are. When they're carting the old lady out the theatre. She's a woman of action, isn't yeah. she? Yeah, the Doctor is effectively just chasing round Willow the Wisp. Simon Callow, though, interesting actor, isn't he? I mm. mean, he's very theatrical, very yes. over the top, but it kind of works for Dickens. I don't think it would have worked for everyone. Perhaps he wouldn't have played every part that way. No, but he, he is gleefully over the top. It but in works this... for any sort of scene where you can say, Balderdash! Mm. With mm. complete oh, integrity. The, the scene where the Gelth makes itself known in the theatre and he says, what phantasmagoria is this? Mm. That makes my heart just leap with joy. <laughs> Firstly, because I love the word. And there is this little part of me that just thinks, but that's the first big Finnish play that Mark Gatiss wrote. Oh. It's called Phantasmagoria. Huh. Is... Um, I've got something that I want to say about Foley. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'm, I'm, I'm a really big fan of Foley. At some point in my life, I Wait, actually... Wait, before you tell us about that fan of Foley, how much of a fan of Foley you are, listen to those birds in the background. Oh, yes. a lawnmower is going across now. And some bacon is frying. It must be bacon and Eccleston time again. Anyway, so I really like Foley, and I would love to, at some point, be a recording artist of Foley, Maybe if every other career that I choose, like aviation and packaging, goes wrong. For example, Why is that bell tolling? Shush. Yes, Perhaps shush. it's calling shush. us to prayer. What? I'm just, because Andy's editing this. <laughs> section, so. Hey, why is a car reversing out of a gravel drive? <laughs> eh, eh, you like that? So anyhow, as, as I was just about to say, my very good friend David Attenborough... The respected... Foley artist. No, not Foley. In fact, you may laugh, but in fact, at certain points, he has been a sound engineer and like, recording like... artist. Very, very respective um, naturalist. What do I call him? My oldest? I don't know. Naturist. He's a nature. No. no. 
I totally fell for that. Anyway. This is a very interesting story, and I'm going to accompany you on uh, maybe xylophone. (laughs) (laughs) I hate you all, and I want you to perish in a cloud of blue smoke. Bongos and xylophone, go. Okay, well, so, um, David Attenborough, the brilliant uh, voiceover artist of many a nature documentary, once gave a lecture at my old school. And he described to me a particular method of making the sound of somebody walking on snow. Now, he was describing it in the context of a polar bear walking on snow, because, of course, you can only film a polar bear from an extreme distance, otherwise it'll rip off your face and wear it as a hat. But we were talking about it in the context of Rose stepping out of the TARDIS and being all like, check out my badass shoes, and also, look, there is some snow. Um, And what actually you do is you take custard powder, you put it into a pair of old nylon tights, and you scrunch it. And when you scrunch it, it makes the exact sound of somebody walking on snow. Because the sound of somebody walking on snow is always somebody crunching custard powder in some old tights. And that is true. And you can try it out at home. Do you know the sound effect I like the most? It's when they do on radio plays, when they do the open and closing door, and they have a tiny little door. (laughs) Wow. It's very interesting you talk about that moment where Rose steps out into the snow and, and leaves a footprint. Because for me, that's a really poetic Mm. moment that she's yeah. actually placing her foot into the past and leaving mm. a mark mm. and the, the the time that the camera lingers on that and i think it's a wonderful little moment and i think another thing that rtd does so well is to capture the thrill of what if this really happened mm. to you mm. what if you really were whisked away and were able to visit the far-flung future and the past and actually you know be there and and that little moment of of putting that first footprint in the snow is just mm. mesmerizingly brilliant. But then he's very good at pricking the bubble as well, isn't he? Because they come out the TARDIS and she's over the moon. The doctor buys a paper. He says, well, okay, I'm slightly out with the date. It's mm-hmm. not 1860. He says, I don't care. It's 1869. I don't care. This isn't Naples, it's Cardiff. Oh. oh. <laughs> <laughs> There's more than one, isn't there? I can't believe I'm going to die in a dungeon yeah. or in a cellar in Cardiff. Yeah. Mm. It's it's akin to the <laughs> Simpsons kicking the Fox Network every yeah. week. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say that I, I love that scene with the footprint in the snow as well, Sigma, and I love that that, that it comes on the um, comes at the end of a lovely scene in the TARDIS where Rose is saying, "But 1869, it's in the past. It only happened once. But you can go back as many times as you like. No wonder you just want to travel always." Anywhere, anywhere. So, Christopher Eccleston, I haven't been in an episode uh, where we've actually discussed a Ninth Doctor episode before, so I I want to quickly say, sometimes he is fantastic, to use his catchphrase, (laughs) He sometimes he's very believable, uh, real boyish kind of enthusiasm and, and charm. Sometimes it really feels like he can't read the lines right, that he doesn't know how to read the lines. It, he seems to be about half and half for me. Um, sometimes he is a brilliant doctor and sometimes he is a jobbing actor that really doesn't want to be there. And he, he seems to flip between them within episodes for me. Mm. And sometimes mm. he puts his chin on his neck and looks a bit like a skinhead Ronald McDonald. <laughs> <laughs> sometimes he does. I know what you mean, Chris, but the way I've always read his performance is that he's very alien. He's very not quite how you would expect 
a human being to do those lines or to um, do that body language or so for me it's believably alien and I have always assumed that that was the performance he was aiming for rather than not quite getting what he was doing I hope that's the case but for me that characterization doesn't work mm. but having said that I would love to see how this doctor developed mm. um, I'd I, love to have yeah. seen another season I would of as well him. Yeah, he's so yeah. angry and prickly but there's these moments of great well, humanity. There's moments of great compassion in there. I'd really, I really enjoy to see how how the Ninth Doctor. I, I was thinking the other day actually, the Ninth Doctor. The inferences he's just changed in Rose. Yeah. So whereas other incarnations could possibly have lasted hundreds of years, um, he this Ninth Doctor uh, is is just within the space of Rose traveling with him. So it can't be more than a couple of years because she doesn't age that much. Mm. He is an incredibly short-lived incarnation, even within the narrative. I mean, I know he's only done one season, but, you know, the, the sixth Doctor could have had any amount of adventures before he crashed, you know, before the Ronnie brought him down. Mm. So he, so within the narrative, he could have had a huge time. And indeed, you know, if you take Big Finisher's canon, he did. But this ninth Doctor, he just had a very brief spam with one... Human girl. I just, I find that quite interesting too. Like a supernova doctor. And looking like Ronald McDonald. And looking like <laughs> Ronald McDonald. But what this episode has really said to me, I think, is that all all eras of this new show have had brilliant parts to them. And it's very lazy to stereotype them in, in the way I think you do. Mm. So, are oh, the RTD era... You know, or even the Ninth Doctor and then David Tennant's early years. There's, there's always something to enjoy there. Always something that is yeah, brilliant. And uh, so I'm really glad I went back and watched this. I was really impressed with it. I loved it. Thought it was really great. Your analysis of it there kind of reminds me a little bit of the milkshake bar that we had at our engagement party. Partially because I'm still thinking about food, but also because what we had there were many different sorts of chocolate, like, for example, chocolate oranges and Toblerones and strawberry and banana and peanut butter and loads Lidl's of... own version of Mars bars. That's right. Oh, yes. Hurrah for lumberjackies or whatever they're called. Anyway, the point is, when you put banana, peanut butter and certain kinds of chocolate together, you get a really delicious milkshake I like to call a chunky monkey. Only if you add milk as well. And that might be, for example, when you put, um, when you put, for example, this dude who wrote this one. What's his name again? Mark Gatiss. Mark Gatiss with uh, Christopher Eccleston. You might get something like that, or Stephen Moffat with uh, Christopher Eccleston. But say, for example, you were to put some banana with some Toblerone with some chocolate orange and a Jaffa cake. It's just a bit, bleh, it's too sweet and a bit weird. And that's and Love and that Monsters. Might be I, Love I and would, Monsters. I would get one hell of a headache as I did when I watched Love and Monsters for the first time. <laughs> Oddly enough. It all fits together. So any fine, final thoughts on this episode? Do you know what we haven't talked about? What? Um, Gwyneth. <gasps> we haven't talked about her at all. Isn't she good, actually? You can see why she was offered mm. the yeah. Torchwood It's a lovely performance. Part. She's a very strange character, though. She's a, quite, quite a, a mix of or very authoritative and very... Um, Deferential. Yeah, very. Mm. Which is, I mean, I can understand that she's a... Servant. A servant, mm. but then uh, Mr. Whatever is Sneed? Sneed. Needs her. Sneed. That mm. much. He sneeds her. That, it... <laughs> that, oh. that wasn't worth a laugh, but I, I thought I'd throw it in. Mr. Sneed is kind of very dependent on her to kind of tell him when something's wrong. And she's 
very deferential to him when she doesn't need to be, I don't think. Although she's a housemaid. Well, I think but... she... I think you're right, Chris, but... Um, she does push the limits. She, she does speak her mind. And then she's like, oh, no, I'm speaking my mind. I can't do that, can I? It's a lovely balance in the writing and the characterization mm. and in the performance, which I think is absolutely outstanding. And my favourite scene, perhaps, ooh, I don't know, give or take in series one, is that scene between her and Rose where Rose says, so, you know, what's your life like? And Gwyneth is talking oh, yeah. about how, how much, does he how much she you? gets paid yeah. and how she would have been happy with a bit less money. And, and then Rose tries to talk about boys and Gwyneth is all like, oh, no, we can't talk about that. Oh, but yes, we can. And it's just a lovely, um, you know, that's how it would be if you went back into time and you were able to talk to someone who would be a peer in real life if they were from the same century as you. And the difference in experience and outlook it's so two young girls two young girls what you're girls. trying to say like ultimately as is in my experience it all comes back to has he got a nice bum <laughs> and, that's what it's and, all about as i've discovered from this series quite frequently yes <laughs> but but and, and andy's on spot on Hello, Gwen. It's me, the Doctor. What are you doing in Victorian-era Cardiff? Who? Gwen. You. Gwen from Torchwood. That's your name, isn't it? The famous gap-toothed, leather-clad temptress and inexplicable chubby chaser. I don't know what you're talking about. Look, drop the axe, sunshine. We don't have time. Something alien and terrible is threatening Cardiff, and by extension the world. You're Torchwood. Can't you solve this for us? Phone Tosh or whatever. Do something involving having sex or swearing or a pterodactyl. Well, I've never heard the like. Never mind. I've called in an old friend. It's Martha Jones. Oh, I'm not Martha Jones. She's my cousin. I'm Adiola. Doesn't that mean nipple? No. Okay, sorry. I I get confused with human anatomy. I do, by the way. You get confused too? No, I do work for Torchwood in an administrative capacity. Great. Do you have a pterodactyl? I have a Bluetooth headset and a relaxed attitude to sex in the workplace. Must be part of the Torchwood job description. Greetings! Oh, thank goodness for that. It's Amy Pond. I am no such thing. I am a soothsayer of the Sibylline Sisterhood. Oh, can you help us? Do you need me to call someone using my freaky eye hands? Not really. We have Bluetooth. Um, We just need someone to help with this as yet unnamed alien threat. Can I help? Ah, Sarah Kingdom, but you died. I am not this Sarah Kingdom of which you speak. Well, then you must be Joanna, Richard the Lionheart's sister. Wrong again. I am Morgane, the Sun Killer. I'm not sure you're going to be much help. Does anyone else have any ideas? I've just rung Tosh, but she says she's just a medic who looked after a pig alien. That one doesn't count. That was retconned to actually be Tosh in a subsequent episode of Torchwood. What are you talking about, Doctor? (laughs) Never mind Charlene from Neighbours. And take off that stupid maid's uniform. You two, Gwen. Hello, K9. I am K9 Mark III. We're really scraping the bottom of the barrel now. When did you turn up, Wilf? I think you have me confused with someone else, sir. I was just strolling across the common, making good use of the things everyday folk leave behind. No, this is getting ridiculous. Can you help Professor Lazarus? No, but I did write an episode of Doctor Who set in Victorian Cardiff. Does that help? No, it doesn't. Actually, I've had quite enough of this spatial genetic multiplicity. What's that mean? It's a scientific term. It refers to a rare condition that only infects casting directors when they're behind schedule and can't really be bothered anymore. 
It makes no sense to have one actor play multiple parts. As opposed to multiple actors playing one part? Good point, Moxel Balhoon. I'm Balakafalata. Oh, shut up. Um, okay, so shall we just wrap up by saying two words that describe what we think of the episode? Terrifyingly touching. <laughs> Modern classic. Horrifyingly good. You're trying to make a compound word, aren't you? Mm. Very slow. Um. <laughs> All right. <laughs> <laughs> that's one That's one word. Um, transcendentally scary. Yeah. Hooray, well done. Good stuff. Okay, so this is called my bloof. Basically, in the last, well, actually, this afternoon, um, I had a look to see what kind of rumours I could find on the internet about the future of Doctor Who. And I have picked two and made one up myself, um, and which I, Chris... And Andy are going to read to Laura. Basically, Laura has to guess which one of the three we're going to read is fake. Although so, they're all kind of fake, aren't they? It's just well, yeah. I'm not saying that any are one. There, there are two that are genuinely things I found on the internet. That doesn't mean they're real. So, Laura, are you ready? I don't know if I can ever be ready for something as enthralling as this. Well, hold on to your hat <laughs> or the microphone. Okay, here's number one. Stereotypical, garlic-crunching, baffling, statement-making, magic-footed fo- former football wizard and now even more baffling actor Eric Cantona is to play an as-yet-unnamed baddie in Series 6. Floppy-haired, one-trick aristocratic actor and celebrity backseat prostitute botherer Hugh Grant is to appear in Series 6 as an alternative version of The Doctor. Non-Oscar-winning zombie-thumping director and once-winner of a competition on Saturday morning classic Going Live, Edgar Wright is to direct an episode in the second half of Series 6. So, Laura, which one of those three do you think is made up by me? Oh, my goodness. I think it's Hugh Grant. It's Hugh Grant. He's far too much of a nincompoop to be on Doctor Who. How did I make that that easy for you? That's yeah, oh, yeah. but he did straight to she it. Did. He did play the Doctor. He did, yes, yes in the Curse of Fatal Death. I think it's because I really, really want Edgar Wright to do, to direct an episode. Mm-hmm. I think he's brilliant, and I thought that uh, what's him call it versus the world. Scott oh, Pilgrim versus Scott Pilgrim versus the world was super, not quite as good as Hot Fuzz. But, and also, Eric Cantona, he makes a really good baddie, and I can just imagine him getting involved He'll with this. He'll make a great baddie! Just He'll like make... he has done with testicular cancer. He'll make a great baddie based on his one film performance. Yes, which was good. Where he didn't play a baddie. Well, <laughs> he kind well, of... Either, either way, I'm just being bitter. You got it right. Well done, Nora. So what are we saying here? We're actually saying that Edgar Wright... No, it's gonna, no, they were saying there's a room. That's something I found in the. Oh, I get it now. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so that's about it for this week, I think. So um, thank you very much for downloading and listening. Um, so it's uh, goodbye from me, Chris Alpha. Goodbye from me, Chris Sigma. Goodbye from me, Andy. Bye. And hello from Laura. Hello. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>
<laughs> Slick. We're so professional. I mean, it's amazing. <laughs> so staying in. Check yourself, it's the girl, we 